0: Hppodcraft.com. There be those who say that things and places have souls, and there be those who say they have not. I dare not say myself, but I will tell of the street. Oh, boy. You know, I was uh, <laughs>
1: I was thinking of streets, and I was thinking of houses and yards. and I live in an apartment, which I like, but um, yeah. I envy people that have yards. One, because I'd like to get a dog, but also because if I had one, I would take the story out there in the backyard and shoot it in the freaking head. <laughs> uh, wait, sir, who are you? <laughs> who is this person spewing this invective? I am Chad Pfeiffer.
2: Well, Chad, I'm Chris Lackey, and I am shocked. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not shocked in the slightest. Uh, but it's not just Chad and I this week. That's right. We've got a, a guest, uh, a guest host. We've a got, guest host. We have a guest host on the show this week. And
1: uh, there be those who say that white people have soul. There be those that say <laughs> they do not. <laughs> I, I don't want to say myself, but I will introduce Matt Barisi. <laughs> Hello. Matt is the executive director of the Association of Writers and Writing Programs at George Mason University. He's also a published author who has dabbled in the Lovecraft genre, I believe. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and he is our friend. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a guy who, who uh, knows Lovecraft. Yes. Hello, Matt.
3: Hello. How are you guys? We are good. Thanks guys. for having me on the show.
1: Where where are we talking to you Matt?
3: from? I'm in Virginia. I'm in Northern Virginia, right outside D.C. Mmm, delicious Virginia.
1: We're using the internet to our advantage
2: right yeah. now. Yeah,
3: <laughs> the wonders of technology. Yeah.
1: I've got a colander on my head with all kinds of
3: wires coming out of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, <laughs> the dream machine. <laughs> so, uh, so this story's pretty horrible. Yeah,
2: it's pretty bad. Well, wait, wait, let's before we give any commentary here, I think we need to give it. We need to we need to put it out there, and okay. we need to look at it.
1: All right, and then we'll yeah. So, And the nice thing about this story is whatever our feelings are about it. Mm -hmm. It is kind of H.P. Lovecraft's quick little synopsis of American history. And uh, because of that, I thought it would be a good opportunity to discuss maybe Lovecraft's larger historical relevance.
0: Okay, great. Men of strength and honor fashioned that street. Good, valiant men of our blood who had come from the blessed isles across the sea. At first it was but a path trodden by bearers of water from the woodland spring to the cluster of houses by the beach. Then, as more men came to the growing cluster of houses and looked about for places to dwell, they built cabins along the north side, cabins of stout oaken logs with masonry on the side toward the forest, for many Indians lurked there with fire arrows. And in a few years more, men built cabins on the south side of the street.
2: That's the birth of the street there. Basically, men came from the Isle, which I assume is England. Even though a lot of uh, people that came from Europe weren't weren't necessarily from Eng- England. In fact, the Puritans, which I think settled a lot of the area, were were Dutch.
3: Yeah, and por- <laughs> por- Portuguese and uh, Spanish. And...
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lovecraft describes grave men in conical hats who lived there with bonneted wives and, and sober children.
3: Yeah. We're so we're not... talking we're talking about the Puritans. We're basically. talking about the Puritans. Yeah, I believe that's what he's
1: talking about colonial, puritanical New England, and, and you know, they were good people because they had come from, from dear old age.
3: Yeah. One thing that's interesting to me about this whole story is that it is sort of very classical in the sense that it's Lovecraft's Four Ages of Man, like an ancient Grecian hmm. description of the, you know, development of the country. There was a yeah, great yeah. golden age, and then all of a sudden it, it slowly got corrupted and more corrupted as we go forward. <laughs>
1: right. Part of that corruption is, uh, the, of course, the slaughter of the indigenous people of this uh, continent, which Lovecraft... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lovecraft uh, dispatches that little piece of history in a, in a sentence.
0: There was war, and thereafter no more Indians troubled the street.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, this is what's awesome is this is the glory period of history when the, pe- when the colonials came and uh, killed the indigenous people. This is when things were great. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is before the corruption set in. You know, this is,
1: this is the golden age. Yeah, during this golden age, the town turned from just this sort of ramshackle collection of uh, cabins to an actual city, and, and everyone built some pretty sweet houses.
0: One by one, the cabins gave place to houses. Simple, beautiful houses of brick and wood, with stone steps and iron railings and fan lights over the doors. No flimsy creations with these houses, for they were made to serve many a generation.
3: Right, so there was an age where things were better, and things were, people were good and decent, basically, and they were sturdy, good people, right? That's exactly right. what Lovecraft's uh, telling us right now.
1: <laughs> and, and, and and these houses, uh, will serve them for many a generation, and uh, serve them in some peculiar ways, perhaps, yeah. later in the story. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. But in the meantime, we move on to the uh, three-cornered hats and small swords and the uh, lace and periwigs.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, delicious, snowy periwigs. Yeah. This is sort of, I guess, the pre-revolutionary war period that Lovecraft describes. Yes, he talks about the street and the, the the trees and the oaks and the maples, and um, and he loves those rose gardens
2: mm-hmm.
3: and
1: tall beavers. <laughs> yes, oh, God, tall, miss... tall beavers. You know, that's we had so many more tall beavers before the immigrants showed up and screwed
2: up the beaver
3: population <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> But then the revolution happens, right? Then the yeah, revolution next... happens. Yes, yeah, sure. right.
1: The young men of the street go off to war. Some never come back.
3: Yeah, and then he
2: mentions this because uh, the the flag changes after this right. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's the stars and uh, the stars and stripes are are created, and and now
1: there are. Uh... <laughs> Oh, God. I'm still laughing about the tall, the, the denizens with their walking sticks, tall beavers and cropped heads. What does that mean
3: exactly? <laughs> what what is a tall beaver anyway? Is I, that I, are you see are you see referring to like a code or something there? Or I have no idea.
1: Maybe they all kept tall beavers as pets.
3: <laughs> I don't think so. It's hard. I
2: tried yeah. to do a search on tall beaver and I came up. <laughs> you probably
1: came up with some interesting stuff.
2: Boy, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to speak of it ever again.
1: <laughs> the search engine results that shall not be named. <laughs> I just imagine that he, what, he's, what he's intimating is that some swarthy, short European beavers showed up, you know, <laughs> intermingled with these tall, stately beavers.
3: And soiled the bloodline. Ugh,
1: now we just have these you know, mulatto beavers running around, oh, we don't know where valley. they're from. Well, uh, they begin to industrialize this city. And people show up from elsewhere, but it still kind of retains its English purity.
0: Then came days of evil, when many who had known the street of old knew it no more and many knew it who had not known it before.
1: That's the worst thing. So had. lame. Yeah. <laughs> that's a terrible. <laughs> it's a lame sentence. Well, that's when things get bad. You know, well,
3: things are starting to get bad before that, though, because he's right. saying that you know it's just like in, uh, when he's saying that they tore open the earth and put strange pipes in or whatever. Yeah. It sort of sounds like Ovid there, where Ovid talks about men started to become evil when they started digging in the earth and for mines and ores and stuff like that. Sure,
1: it's a typical fear of scientific advancement. And, right. Uh, yeah. It's well, with I
2: mean, with scientific evan- advancement comes change, and you know people are afraid of change right yeah
1: and uh, uh industrialization in general not something that, that pleases this guy because no you know, he liked it better <laughs> when we were communing with nature yeah uh somebody had actually commented on uh one of our other podcasts that we you know we shouldn't be judging Lovecraft necessarily by the morals of our own time
2: that's that's uh something yes. you know
1: and I tend to agree with a lot of Yankees at, at at the time he was writing might have felt the same way but uh this story's ridiculous. I mean, you, <laughs> well, let's, it's let's, hard not. I know, it's hard. To, uh, let's just push yes, through. Sure. Okay. Let's push through. And So then uh, the people who show up, they have unpleasing faces. They have these coarse accents. And, and the houses start falling into decay uh, as they move.
2: Right. Yeah, Basically people from other places. Immigrants. Yeah. Immigrants are coming in and, right, and right. destroying it. Like a vile virus <laughs> infecting, yeah, right. infecting the body of, of
3: blessed New England. Yeah. But then something good happens. The Civil War.
1: Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Then the men march off to the Civil War. Some don't come back. Well, it is a good thing, right, Matt? Because they uh, they feel a stir of pride.
3: Right, pride is because they wore blue, and I think that's kind of an interesting (laughs) thing in Lovecraft. Is that you know he does he is proud that this was part of the Union at least.
1: Yeah, they're part of the the North. He's a northerner, a Yankee. The Civil War happens. uh, Some men go off, some don't come back, and
0: then new kinds of faces appeared in the street—swarthy, sinister faces with furtive eyes and odd features. Whose owners spoke unfamiliar words and placed signs in known and unknown characters upon most of the musty houses.
3: Yeah. Oh no, push carts are crowding the gutters. It's bad. Yeah, Sorted. that's bad. It's, it's,
1: there's an undefinable stench settled <laughs> over the place. Which I'm assuming is just like pierogies or something.
3: He's, you know, there's, there's some of that you
1: food. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I can't identify. What is that? Is that a cream sauce? <laughs>
3: But then something good happens. World War One. Exactly. We jump into the Great War.
0: (laughs) Great excitement once came to the street. War and revolution were raging across the seas. A dynasty had collapsed, and its degenerate subjects were flocking with dubious intent to the Western land. So he's talking about the Bolshevik Revolution that that happened at the conclusion of the Great War.
1: 1917, yeah. And because of that, and pro- you know, possibly the the falling of the empire that we mm-hmm. referenced before, there's a lot of people from that portion of Europe who are starting to come to our beautiful Western land.
3: Mm. Not good.
1: Not good. Uh, and uh, they they want to do some uh, conspiring. These guys.
3: They're hell bent on it,
0: actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and well, so we had a great victory in
0: in the war, and, and most of our young men returned. Those who had lacked something lacked it no longer. Yet did fear and hatred and ignorance still brood over the street, for many had stayed behind and many strangers had come from distant places to the ancient houses.
3: Yeah, and then we get into what they're doing when they're here, right? They're they're forming... They hang out at uh, Pyotrovich's bakery. (laughs) Nothing good can be happening (laughs) there. Oh no,
1: Uh uh-uh. He doesn't understand that foreign glazing technology. The
2: the squalid Rifkin School of Modern Economics. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> the Circle Social Club and the Liberty Cafe. Oh, a bit of irony
1: there. Yeah. Oh, it's
0: ironic. But, uh, you know, <laughs> they're, they're all those places, but... Uh... The heart of that plotting was in the street, whose crumbling houses teemed with alien makers of discord and echoed with the plans and speeches of those who yearned for the appointed day of blood, flame, and crime.
1: So these are these no, are, are I... Terrorists.
0: Yeah, they're
3: terrorists. One, one of the things I wondered about in this story is what exactly were they going to do? D- does he say, actually? I mean, they're, they're he, going to destroy America, but how they're, are they going to... Their plan is to... I think they're going to
2: bomb America. They're going to set up bombs and destroy cities and generally bring anarchy. Basically the whole country. They're
3: just going to bring it down. Well,
1: so, well, I guess uh, Boston. He's talking about a terrorist plot. Right. He says that the, the military, they can't really figure out what's going on. What they do know is that some kind of plot is hatching and that it's going to launch on the 4th of July. Yeah. So he's he's doing an episode of 24 right now. Everybody knows something's going to happen. Nobody knows what.
3: Um, And it's going to come from Petrovich's bakery. Oh,
1: get a man on there.
3: The doom that came from the bakery.
1: (laughs) And the law can't do much about this uh, plotting. They just put everybody on orange alert. They've got Bauer out there. They've got, you know, the cops, the military. They just know something. It's planned for July 4th. And uh, The rumor
0: now spread widely that these houses contained the leaders of a vast band of terrorists, who on a designated day were to launch an orgy of slaughter for the extermination of America and of all the fine old traditions which the street had loved. Sons of bitches.
1: That's such uh, like good Bush language too, because they're not just here to exterminate America. It's the traditions they want to come in. You know, what uh, I mean? not yeah. only
2: who we are, but who we've always
1: been. That's right. <laughs>
2: It's ridiculous. They're going to kill Lovecraft, like.
1: They're going to take away our periwigs. <laughs> <laughs> and our tall beavers. And our tall beavers. That's how the terrorists will win. I love that the uh, the terrorists are plotting over hidden wires. You know, they've got all kinds of code. Languages. <laughs> it really is like an episode of 24, <laughs> you know? It is. It is like
2: a twenty-four. Now, now he talks this. Well, hold on, I'm, I'm looking at the text here. He talks about the blue coats uh, are going to defend, but then the olive coats show up. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, well, that's that. Uh, I can explain that to you. Um, okay. the blue coats are police. Yeah, and the but police. They're in. Orbit. Well, they have. Okay, I'm just gonna to to make some sense of this because you can't make any sense of this unless you don't. Okay. There was a, a police strike that happened in uh, October of 1919.
1: Oh, that's what this is. Based
2: yes. On. Okay, and. Uh, So Lovecraft wrote this. This is a a quote from him. The Boston police mutiny of last year is what prompted that attempt. The magnitude and significance of such an act appalled me. Last uh, fall, it was grimly impressive to see Boston without bluecoats and to watch the musket-bearing state guardsmen patrolling the streets Uh. as though military occupation were in force.
1: So there's some kind of police strike. I thought maybe the cops were in on the deal, so... uh, Yeah, I know.
2: How would you know this from this story? Like, what the hell's
0: going on? It doesn't...
1: Well, I assume that the the military guys were in town. Right. All I know is that, uh, you know, they can't figure anything out.
0: And yet, the men in Olive Drab will always remember that night and will speak of the street as they tell of it to their grandchildren. For many of them were sent there toward morning on a mission unlike that which they had expected. It was known that this nest of anarchy was old, and that the houses were tottering from the ravages of the years and the storms and the worms. Yet was the happening of that summer night a surprise because of its very queer uniformity? It was indeed an exceedingly singular happening, though after all, a simple one. For without warning, in one of the small hours beyond midnight, all the ravages of the years and the storms and the worms came to a tremendous climax. After the crash, there was nothing left standing in the street, save two ancient chimneys and part of a stout brick wall. Nor did anything that had been alive come alive from the ruins.
3: The street has its revenge. The street yeah.
2: falls apart. This is what I was confused when I read it, and I read it a few times. Now, did the the National Guardsmen just just level this city? No, that's what I thought at first. I thought but, the buildings collapsed. On yeah, everybody. they just the, the, all the buildings just collapse on everybody, and that's it
1: like just magically yeah that's what yeah oh is that your interpretation, Matt?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things, there's a theme in here that I think is pretty interesting in Lovecraft's work, which, is, first of all, is obsession with the purity, or not the purity, but just his obsession with the past. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a story like this, you know, where the, where the street is gradually corrupted by immigration and everything, ancient powers are eventually unleashed and destroy yeah. the corrupt presence or something, you know, <laughs> which happens in this. It ha- happened in Doom Came to Sarnath, yeah. too.
1: You're right. Yeah, man. yeah, so I think that uh, um, the terrorists were in those houses plotting, and the street itself, was finally so sick of these non-Westerners uh, uh, or these non-Americans screwing up their street that they yeah. they collapsed on them and killed no, them.
2: non non Anglo Saxons, right.
1: and uh, and then you know a wandering poet, uh, you know, yeah, just, who yeah. always seemed to come around whenever there's a crime. Scene. <laughs> now he said he saw something a little different. Um, he, he, he kind of doffs his beret and leans over to a guy next to him and says I'll tell you that what I saw <laughs> when the houses were collapsed I, dream, I saw it was as if I saw the ghostly images of the old houses there but, and Lovecraft says now we all know we can't trust poets yeah. <laughs> but he said he smelled roses in full bloom and he saw the ghost houses
2: yes the houses that were once theirs the not of the native americans mind oh, you no 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 the, of the of pretty one the pretty one yeah, good one the good ones, <laughs> the good ones.
1: <laughs> it is kind of satisfying that the houses collapsed on terrorists yeah that's all right in, in some way but uh oh boy the uh the ghost houses man and then uh
2: mm-hmm. lovecraft uh, wraps it all up by yeah, repeating the, 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 the first sentence yeah, at the end deer. of it and yeah. that is the end
3: Thank God. What do you guys think? Did you Uh, like the story? This
2: is the worst Lovecraft story I've ever read in my whole life. I was embarrassed while I was reading this. Like it really (laughs) I felt so bad that I'm doing a podcast about HP Lovecraft when I read this. Because there's like an egotism in this, in 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 his you know, he's got racist tendencies. We Mm. all know that. It's just this diluted world view that he has, yeah. and it so, seems so petty and little, and it's not written well.
1: Uh, I saw this in Wikipedia. It said, according to Daniel Harms, author of the Encyclopedia Cthuliana, if someone came up to me and said, Hey, Daniel, I think H.P. Lovecraft was a wordy, over-sentimental bigot whose stories don't make much sense. This would be the last story I would hand to him to convince him (laughs) otherwise.
3: (laughs) But, you know, in his defense, this must have the Bolshevik revolution must have been a pretty traumatic experience in Americans' lives. I mean, basically what he's saying is our ideals are going to trump their ideals, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Even if
2: it's supernatural.
1: Well, so, no, maybe we need to examine that a little more because we do have quite a bit of distance on what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. It must have been frightening. I mean, I, you know, sort of like in the 50s when the Russians had Sputnik, everybody flipped out.
2: Yeah, they thought the Russians were going to colonize the moon. And...
1: and to see this other form of government rise up, I mean, this is kind of the beginning of the communist menace. It's definitely the beginning of the red menace.
3: And um, I think that there was a lot of fear that this was going to spread all over the world. And there, there, there remain that fear for the next hundred years, right? Yeah. So I think. Lovecraft is responding to that. I mean, it's, it's sort of a jingoistic piece in a way, you know, like mm. our American we can we can get up and beat those commies kind of thing.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> Yay. This is a, this is, a, there's a direct line between this story and Rocky four. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's it. Yeah.
2: No stop offs. Yeah. This is this. And then the writer of Rocky
1: four. Yeah. What's yeah. what Lovecraft started here. Stallone freaking ended <laughs> in that boxing ring. <laughs>
2: I just want to bring up that this story was, uh, unbelievably published. Um, <laughs> in <laughs> <laughs> uh, December of uh, ni- December of 1920 in an issue of uh-huh. Wolverine Amateur Journal. And unfortunately, it has nothing to do with Logan or the Weapon Expo. <laughs> <laughs> Not that
1: Wolverine.
3: Although this would make an interesting Wolverine adventure since he's supposedly ageless. Yeah, That's he is true. ageless. That's true, yeah. Yeah, does Wolverine show up in any
1: Lovecraft stories? Ah, oh, this would have been a perfect one. You know, maybe he was underneath this, those, those houses slashing through all the support columns with his animanium claws. Oh, Chad. He's the one who foiled mm. this attack. Chad, Wolverine didn't have adamantium claws until the 70s. <laughs> so embarrassed.
2: That was part of the Weapon X program.
1: Um, well, Jesus. let's move on from my lack of knowledge of these things <laughs> to uh, to Matt's wealth of knowledge. Now, H.P. Lovecraft was born right around the same as same time as some other pretty pretty major American literary figures.
3: He he was. He's writing during the great period of American modernism, which is a literary movement that happens between roughly. 1919 and 1935 first of all i should say i'm not an expert in modernism i just took a few classes in college uh with chad so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when he's writing, when he's, you know, he's publishing at the same time as the great works uh, of the 20s. So he's, you know, The Great Gatsby, mm-hmm. The Wasteland, Ulysses. These are all published as Lovecraft is writing, and Lovecraft is reading them. He's clearly reading them. He's yeah. uh, responding to them. Well, there are his and...
1: contemporaries. As you said, Fitzgerald and Hemingway were born right around the same time as well. Right, exactly.
3: So he's about the same age as these great figures that basically dominate English classes for the next hundred years. So T.S. T. Eliot, did he read T.S. Eliot? Was that something? He absolutely read T.S. Eliot because uh, – you know, he refers to T. S. Eliot in *The Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward*, and he actually writes a parody of Eliot's most famous poem, *The Wasteland, which uh, he calls *Waste Paper*. He didn't think too much of it, clearly. <laughs> oh wow,
1: <laughs> that's great! So we just trashed HPL, and while he, meanwhile, he was doing the same thing, trashing uh, T. S. Eliot. Yeah.
3: And another figure, what's interesting about The Street, he writes The Street in 1919, which is the same year that Sherwood Anderson publishes Winesburg, Ohio. And Lovecraft reads Winesburg, Ohio very soon after its publication, which is kind of strange. And do you mind if I go into this a little bit? No, no, please do. Um, So Winesburg, Ohio is this book of short stories. It's sort of an American version of Dubliners. It's about a small town filled with secrets, okay? and um, a year after it's published lovecraft writes arthur the sto- arthur german the story in direct response to weinsburg ohio and he says of Winesburg, ohio because I, I think it's relevant because it, it really reflect you know he's, he's really responding to this modernist he says right. some somebody had been harassing me into reading some work of the iconoclastic moderns these young chaps who pry behind exteriors and unveil nasty hidden motives and secret stigmata and i had nearly fallen asleep over the tame books backstairs gossip of anderson's weinsburg ohio the sainted Sherwood, as you may know, laid bare the dark area which many whited village lives concealed. And it occurred to me that I, and my weirder medium, could probably devise some secret behind a man's ancestry that would make the worst of Anderson's disclosures sound like the annual report of a sabbath school." Oh, wow! <laughs> so he basically says, I'm gonna write something make sure Sherwood Anderson look like a pussy.
1: <laughs> which was Arthur German, right? Wow, that's, that's incredible.
3: Yeah, so his his response to w- Winesburg, Ohio is really interesting because the Miskatonic Valley, or it's Miskatonic Valley, right? It's, it's not Arkham thing. County and all that. Miskatonic Valley is directly in response to Winesburg, Ohio. I mean, he creates this universe basically po- populated with crazy shit that happens. Uh, and Sherwood Anderson, maybe somebody might get accused of child molestation but in this in Lovecraft's Valley somebody's building an ancient space monster in the barn you know what I mean? That kind of <laughs> right, stuff.
1: I love that.
3: Right. Lovecraft's is really different because first of all it's got the supernatural and second of all it's populated you know he, he opens it for business he lets other writers come in and work on it. You know what I mean? He says, fill, fill it up with whatever you want, which is really interesting. I mean, it's the first, I think it's the first time that ever happens, but I'm not sure. I, I can't think of another example.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's great. So his his, uh, his version of Winesburg, Ohio, he doesn't, I mean, nobody else was writing in Sherwin Anderson's.
3: I mean, right, right. That was closed. I mean, Philip Roth has a story later that's set in Winesburg, Ohio, I think, but it's, you know, basically just a nod it's not like what Lovecraft's doing where he's saying write whatever you want and just set it in my universe you know
1: yeah I think that you uh you said something about it that I thought was funny we talked about this previously. you said it was sort of like open source literature
3: it really is because mm-hmm. he's op- he ge- he really does give it away he has no pride of ownership over it which is kind of it's it's pretty pretty magnanimous of him really yeah, yeah. That's really cool.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Well,
3: it's, I think it's uh, it's interesting how Lovecraft,
2: you know, reads these uh, these modernists and and the the things that they're doing or the things that they think are horrible or bad are nothing compared to the perspective that Lovecraft has. It's kind of this uh, cosmicism, you know, this sort mm-hmm. of this world this universal view that humanity is insignificant. All of our little petty squabbles mean nothing. Right. Yet they're you know, writing about this little, little stuff that doesn't mean anything.
1: Yeah, it's it's that kind of noir idea that everybody's got a dirty secret and everybody's kind of bent and wrong. Mm-hmm. But Lovecraft takes it that step further and says, it's not just us as individuals. The whole race has these dirty secrets. <laughs> the whole planet has these dirty underground things down there. All right, yeah, yeah. It's like this cosmic, almost, yeah. filthiness that's down there.
3: What's interesting to me about that also is that you know he really takes... The modernists really, you know, they're, they're claiming to be so revolutionary in all this business. And uh. first of all, it's interesting that Lovecraft's reading them because this is not stuff that people are – this is not stuff that everybody's reading nobody's going around reading the wasteland you know what i mean like right well it seems like
1: that when we studied it in class like this was something that everybody had on
3: their coffee table or something yeah but it's not That's you right. know and um and lovecraft is reading them as they're being published which is also interesting the one thing that he does that the modernists don't do you look at someone like joyce or faulkner or t.s elliott they're, they're obsessed with jesus christ i mean there is jesus christ in those works you know right. but lovecraft he 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 takes his fiction outside Judeo Christian universe, you know. And mm-hmm. it's a very classical idea actually. He's saying you can't to know the gods is to invite madness. If you try to learn about the gods, you're gonna go insane. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a very Greco Roman concept that which the modernists yeah. are trying to get away from. Yeah, no, it's very true. It's very Absolutely. true. Absolutely. Well when when I first uh, Chad was the first one to give me a book of Lovecraft stories, and I got it when I was studying American modernism, and and, every, and the, I remember the professor telling me how revolutionary all, what all these people were doing was, and I and I was reading The Shadow over Innsmouth, and I was thinking. <laughs> boy, these guys are pussies. Like Lovecraft is, you know, there's no Jesus. There's no, you know, there's Jesus in James Joyce. There's yeah. Jesus in Winesburg, Ohio, but there's no Jesus in Lovecraft's fiction. Things aren't going to work out. Jesus is never coming back, which is really fascinating. It's a really, it's a really different kind of idea.
2: Now, what did your professor at the time think of Lovecraft or did he even, because I know a lot,
3: of, a lot of people don't consider Lovecraft even legitimate. Oh no, a lot of them don't. I, ha- I have the pleasure of working with a lot of people in the academy. A lot of the people, you know, in universities, he's just sort of looked down on Lovecraft as if he is a, a minor, insignificant science fiction writer from, from 1920, but I think he's much more influential than that. I, I agree with you, and uh, I think that somebody should probably
2: do a podcast to discuss this. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Despite the fact that,
2: you know, this this week's episode, this, The Street, is—I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's the worst thing that Lovecraft
3: has ever written—that uh, he is important. Well, I mean, clearly one of his big accomplishments is a blend of science fiction and horror that doesn't exist anywhere else. Exactly. I mean, uh, that's new, and it, it does exist somewhat in Shelley and Frankenstein. Well, I, know, I, would, say that is,
2: I would say that's straight-up science fiction. I don't think there's any supernatural uh, mysticism to it at all. What, in Frankenstein? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, well, he's ra-
3: raising the dead.
1: Yeah, it's a blend of horror and science fiction. Maybe there's no supernatural,
3: but...
2: Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that Lovecraft, I mean, we're, it seems like, to me, and of course maybe I'm wrong about this, but Lovecraft is one of the first guys that takes myth and brings it into science. The point that the supernatural that exists out there isn't really supernatural, it's just a, a science that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, he's one of the first guys that is re- really writing about that, those types of things from beyond which is coming up that's one of those where it's it really is about using technology to supersede that supernatural to like or to get better you know to the, the man is being able to through technology and his understanding of the universe be able to control it
3: yeah whereas he but he, you know his his central argument is that that's that's crazy you're never going to be able to control it and it's right
2: oh yeah absolutely yeah. and then once you get there you're not going to you're going to regret that you went to that place <laughs>
3: right, exactly Raymond Chandler. Yep, Raymond Chandler's writing around the same time as Lovecraft, and he's giving birth to noir. And so, you know, Lovecraft and Chandler are kind of fascinating figures in American fiction because they're kind of below this modernist movement, making huge contributions that are probably, you know, basically everything you see on TV is owing to these guys. I think. I mean, in a Lost or sure, it's far more impactful to pop entertainment what
1: uh, Chandler, and Lovecraft did than perhaps what T. S. Eliot or uh, any of the expatriates in you know in Paris were doing.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a big claim. But uh <laughs> I'm making it right now. What I'm scared? I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, well, I mean, those people had a big influence on Lovecraft. I mean, T.S. Eliot, you know, even though he makes fun of T.S. Eliot, you can see the change in diction that happens in The Wasteland. The Wasteland is this technical poem with all this modern fancy verse, and then interspersed with it are these other languages, ancient languages, and then all of a sudden there's vernacular. So then when you look at a story like Innsmouth, and you have this gothic prose interspersed with the vernacular of the townspeople, and then there's ancient Greek and Latin phrases associated with the Necronomicon, I think that that's Eliot's influence on Lovecraft, even though Lovecraft makes fun of him. Right, so,
1: yeah, that's
3: right. A, that's a solid argument.
1: Now, Chandler and Lovecraft, they both wrote some essays about their genres. Right?
3: Uh, well, they're both seminal figures in that sense, too, because both of them write groundbreaking essays on their particular genres. Chandler writes The Simple Art of Murder, Lovecraft writes Supernatural Horror and Literature, which is a great essay, actually. Yeah, it is. Both of them are arguing for the legitimacy of their genres at the, su- at the time they're writing. They're saying, these are legitimate American art forms. And it's interesting yeah. that Poe created both of them. Edgar Allan Poe creates both of them. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah.
2: it's true.
1: He has a detective story in The Murders in the Room Org, and, uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, he certainly did plenty of horror semi-sci-fi. Pretty awesome. Well, so I guess we could say that um, modernism and these writers that were contemporaries of Lovecraft they were kind of building a little uh, street of their own, by which we're all traveling now. As we, uh, well, it's true, because you know it really did, it was a fundamental shift in literature. And you know, a, a few weeks ago, we talked about the statement of Randolph Carter, and how jarring it was, and we, we actually just kind of touched on this a second mm-hmm. ago, but how jarring it was to, you read Lovecraft's very um, antiquated prose, and then when we started to get dialogue, it was in the vernacular of the time, beat it, beat it, get out of here, you know, this, this right. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. you know, most of the modernists and these writers started making people sound more like people sound, making people live more like people live. Right, yeah. And that definitely had a, I mean, that is how we digest entertainment now. We don't like things that are too detached from reality. Yeah, exactly. And if it's something that's genre, we want to have a have it a basis in our humanity. We want to see the main
3: character brush their teeth, right? Right. Hemingway's got a big role in that. Hemingway brings in the vernacular in a way that no other writers do. And, and, right. and, and people like Lovecraft are, you know, they're inevitably influenced by that new shocking diction that people use. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have anything else in the story, Chris? I
2: don't have anything else. I just want to thank Matt yeah. uh, for, for being a part of this and for giving us this great insights you know stuff yeah. i've never really thought about before. and for
1: putting up with us because this is the first time we've uh, done a caller on the show yeah we experienced a few technical difficulties uh but man thank you so much and thank we're, so we're much, definitely going to have you on a, a few more times
3: thanks so much guys thanks for
1: having me and i want to thank andrew lehman for once again providing uh, some of our readings the magnificent andrew lehman it makes my heart cry <laughs> Well, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Matt Parisi. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
3: HPPodcraft.com. All right. Thanks, folks. Thanks. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Oh, I didn't fucking <laughs> say. Hold on. Oh, yes. Uh, what, what? Oh, next week we are, we're we're going to do two stories.
3: Yeah, so we're going to do a little a double, double feature. feature. Uh,
1: it's going to be Poetry and the Gods. Yes. And uh, Cellophase. Cellophase? Cellophane. <laughs> I don't know. How do you say this word, Matt? How do you how do you say the word cellophane? Is it cellophane? Cellophane?
3: I don't even know that. What do you
1: cellophane? C e l e p h a i s. It's the name of the story. I don't know. I don't know. I'm gonna guess it's either cellophane, which is probably how Lovecraft would say it, yeah, or what I like, cellophane. <laughs> cellophane. <laughs> sell Sounds like Sell your face to somebody. <laughs> that creeps me out.
2: It's like see the sequel Face off. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 What do you do when your face is off? You sell a face. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm going to assume that that story is about selling faces. Uh, but we'll find out We're if find I'm out correct or incorrect next week.
0: HP